Um, I've enjoyed lots of things in the programme already, so the blue, the blue postcard tells you about the kinds of things that um, have been going on. And I am also in, this is my blog, and in my blog I'm participating in the 23 Things for Research blog, online blogging course. If you are or are not part of that course, you might, might like to. Um, all of the things that I'm going to talk about today um, are available in various different formats. We're making a recording, but there is also a report of the digital experience research that's available, and an executive summary is available, and both of those are available linked from my blog there, so if you want to, um, if you want to find it after the, um, after the session. Um, and I've written um, my thoughts about the, the research project on there as well, so it's, you can follow it up um, if you want to. But for the purposes um, of the presentation today, so we're presenting about uh, what technologies do our students use, and it's findings from the from the Digi project, but also from other information that we have about what, what students use at Oxford. So the, the particular project um, was a piece of research done last term to discover what technologies students and staff at Oxford use. We surveyed staff, we surveyed students, and we, we interviewed staff with regard to their perceptions of the student experience, though, rather than it being a survey for staff to tell us about their experience. So the questions for staff were about what technologies they think students use and how they use them. Um, it's a very interesting um, piece of research. As I say, it's about 100 pages long. The team was myself and Stuart Lee. Elizabeth Masterman is the lead researcher. Kat Lee was the project manager. And we had two research students working with us, Zoe and Nezreen, Zoe's from Anthropology and Nezreen's from Oxford Internet Institute. So we had, we had quite a team working on it. And I think it is, it is worth a read. Um, it's an internal, it's a, a, pro, a piece of research that was done to inform the university about itself. So a lot of the recommendations are about what the university should do next with regard to the IT systems that we provide. So um, when you read the recommendations, they're quite internally focused rather than being headlines um, for the media or whatever. Um, it's worth reading as well because it's in, there's a lot of detail in it that I'm not going to be able to go into the detail just now. But I'll tell you about the kind of um, survey sample. So when I talk about what we found, um, we did a, a survey of students and the percentages that I mentioned are calculated on a response of um, 687 students responded. About half of those respondents were undergraduates. We also did four focus groups with 20 participants altogether, um, and they were from different divisions and different levels of study. And we had seven student participants who wrote digital diaries, um, what I do each day and how I, how I use um, technology. We had about 95 responses to the staff survey, and we interviewed 32 we did 32 interviews with 37 members of staff. In that group of 37, there was about equal numbers of admin staff and academic staff, um, with some additional library, IT, and senior officials of the university. So we've got quite a good, quite a good coverage um, in who we spoke to. The aim of the project was to define the Oxford student online experience that appropriately supports Oxford's traditional teaching methods, graduate expectations, and the social dimension of student life. So there's a strong 
social dimension. And we sought to find out what digital systems and services support teaching and learning in students' personal lives, how these systems and services are perceived and experienced by the students and staff, what shortcomings and gaps, obviously, so you can see that that's advice to the university as to where we should spend time and resource, and what will be required of these and other systems in five years' time, so that attempt by the university to look forward um, to what we should be working on. Some of it, of course, is um, in response to thinking about students' consumerist behaviour and what they're getting for their money and whether Oxford is meeting those expectations, meeting those needs. And quite a few of the um, recommendations that come out um, are recommendations to departments and colleges um, particularly. So I thought I would put these up um, quite early in the presentation um, you to this is perhaps the take-home message of the report it's perhaps not the most interesting um, bits of the um, qualitative analysis but the suggestions from the report that you might hear about going around in university committees are these kinds of things that we should increase wireless provision that's coming up a lot um, the whether or not services were behind single sign-on whether you could get to information about lectures and whether that was all available in one place whether things were being recorded and put onto the web, that there was a multitude of different systems, students finding uh, different people using different, different things, not consistent and comprehensive use of the systems that we have. And the students also suggested that we should refrain from making any more services that are named to begin with Ox. <laughs> they said, once we're in Oxford, you don't need to keep telling us that all of the services are Ox something. For the purposes of, this, of the Engage um, program of, of um, sessions, I thought I would focus a bit on the technologies that the students said were really important to them. So, the, so we asked them what their top three digital technologies are. Um, they described, so about a quarter of them said Facebook was their top digital technology. They described Facebook, Google+, and YouTube amongst the important digital tools that they would find hard to do without. On average, 80% of the survey respondents stated that they used Facebook in their social and personal lives, and 10% said that they used it to support their studies. It was also interesting from the data that different levels of study seem to use, the, use Facebook in different ways. So nearly 90% of undergraduates said that they used Facebook in their personal and social life, but only about 10% to support their studies. But in taught postgraduates, it was near a 20% said that they used it to support their studies and 80% in their social life. So there's a sort of 10% um, uh, shift between those two different levels of study. They said that YouTube was the second most valuable social tool, 80% of undergraduates nearly 80% of top postgraduates and nearly 80% of research postgraduates using it socially, and about a third of them saying that they use it to support their studies. So they're obviously watching, um, watching things on YouTube. The university is always interested to know whether how st students choose to apply um, to Oxford, and let, uh, fewer than 15% of the students we surveyed said that they had used Facebook to help them decide whether to apply to Oxford. 
but 60, more than 60% said that once they knew they were coming to Oxford, they had used Facebook to get more information about the, the college or the course or the groups that they might um, uh, join. They say that Facebook remains the premier means to keep in touch with friends, learn about groups with similar interests, and organize and keep up with social events. So they said, we use it if someone has a question about when tomorrow's lecture is or about a social event. So they're sharing information amongst themselves. They've also um, said that it's, they prefer to use Facebook to organize social events because phone numbers or direct emails is too personal. So if you want to get a group of people or offer something, an event to a group of people, um, it's also the fastest way to find people, they said, to look people up on Facebook and to keep in touch with everyone who's not in Oxford, so to keep in touch with friends from home. Twitter seemed to feature with about half of the respondents said that they were, they were on Twitter. That's 51% of, of um, the, the people who responded. And just in, you know, in the last year, I would say that we've seen about, I think we have 20 colleges who seem to be actively tweeting and have Twitter accounts. So we've got some really half, the, half the colleges and half of the students using, using Twitter. Reading blogs um, was a widespread activity. Three quarters of the respondents at all levels said that they read blogs, although mostly in their personal lives rather than their studies. 40% and 48% said they kept a blog themselves. So we're definitely seeing um, people writing blogs, whether, and that's probably a mixture between um, social life and, and study life. So this is a, a, a fairly typical quote um, about Facebook. We have a main Facebook group for our course. We do put social events, but there's a lot of course-specific content, homework assignments, information you need to know, or letting people know that I've, I've uploaded this text, they're sharing things. Here's how to do this questions, the sort of study support going on. Has anybody found this reading or the books in the library? So sharing information. And this one, tutorials and supervisions are generally arranged through a convoluted system of group bargaining and discussion on Facebook while a single student negotiates times with our tutors via email. I don't know if that rings a bell. And so they're using a combination of technologies to try to get the task that needs to be done, done. I think it's worth having a, a little bit of a think about Facebook because it's actually a very interesting technology for Oxford. Oxford was one of the first universities to be offered or included in Facebook. If you've seen the movie The Social Network, you'll remember that it, it began at Harvard and then was extended to some of the other U US Ivy League institutions. And you could only join Facebook if you were in that organization. So it was a kind of exclusive experience. And when Facebook actually started to include UK institutions, obviously Oxford and Cambridge were the first ones that they came to because they were trying to sort of do that. Um, exclusivity um, in, the, uh, in the experience. And we do know that an enormous number of our students use Facebook because we can also see how much email traffic is coming into the university from Facebook. So those alerts about people commenting on your post or somebody liking your stuff, can, you know, sometimes that's as, as much as half of the um, e email that's coming into Oxford is from Facebook alerting people um, to stuff going on. The University of Oxford's page on Facebook, so our, our official University of Oxford page, has 700,000 likes. So clearly people are choosing to follow the university or follow 
um, information from the University of Oxford Brookes has 44,000 likes. There's, um, and Oxford Brookes actually have a closed group that you can be part of if you have a Brookes email address, and there's about 2,000 students in there. So that's a, they've taken um, that additional step in the way that the university uses Facebook. So we don't have that, but we have dozens of Oxford groups on Facebook. And some of the largest ones, so interesting talks at Oxford. I don't know, are you familiar with this Facebook group? Interesting talk at, talks at Oxford where students have sort of decided that they should share information about interesting talks and lectures in the, in the face of there being no central listing um, of lectures. So they, they share information about um, what would be interesting. And that has 4,000 4, members um, and that's quite an interesting um, example of a, a project where it's been sort of student-led and set up. Um, there's a website called Ox Talks, and it's supported by some, st um, some students at Lineker College to meet a need that they felt um, was important. Um, however, students move on, and that project has been at risk and not clear how it was going to be supported, and Central IT have now taken taken that on and we would hope to be supporting Ox Talks as a central service um, by, by Christmas, or by the end of this calendar year. Another very popular group at Oxford is Overheard at Oxford. So Overheard at Oxford is a group where people post um, yes, things they've overheard somebody saying, usually so that they can giggle at it or show how somebody doesn't understand what Oxford is about. So some slightly um, snarky and amusing comments in there. But that's a very popular group. It has 6,000 members of people putting in little notes about things that they've overheard. Oxford Applicants for 2012 has 600 members. Freshers Week had 1,200 members. So there's lots of groups going on with particular, around particular events and, and topics. Groups like Oxford Postgrads, PPE, Poetry, the C.S. Lewis Society, they all sit at about 600 members. Um, what, it, what I also saw on arising on Facebook is thinking about the, the background of Facebook as being a, a social experiment. There's, um, there's something on Facebook now called hall surfing. Are you familiar with hall surfing? Okay, so hall surfing it actually says on its, on its web page, on its Facebook page, that it's an Oxford University exclusive social experiment, so very, very much in the, in the spirit of um, Facebook. And you, it's a way that you make a request to dine at a particular college, and then somebody from that college invites you to come and join them. Somebody from their MCR comes to join them, and the idea is to, is to surf and dine at all of the different colleges while you're while you're at Oxford. So we still, so we have these very Oxford-specific um, exclusive experiments. And actually, um, Oxford as an um, incubation ground for, for social technologies, um, in terms of the Engage program, you may come to sessions about um, academia.edu, which is a bit like LinkedIn, but it's specific to, to academics. And that um, was started by some uh, people who are some fellows at Oxford and also the social networking technologies of ELG and Colwiz are both also um, pieces of software or um, social networking sites that grew out of, of people at Oxford starting those. So there's certainly a, a strong tradition of social networking within the university. We also asked students about how they use digital 
tools to study and to learn. And it's clear from the responses um, in the Digi report that online resources are very much part of their, their studies. So the students emphasized that online sharing and storage of teaching resources, um, lecture slides, handouts, notes, and reading lists. There's lots of comments about the library and the, li and the reading list and how important those are. But also recordings of lectures. People saying that those are very important to them. Um, we also do a survey at Freshers' Fair, and last year's Freshers' Fair, um, so 2011, copies of lecture handouts were very important, either to re before the lectures, that was 75% of the students that we saw at Freshers' Fair said before the lecture, and 88% after the lecture. So some quite high numbers looking for um, online handouts or, or recordings of lectures. 55% rated listening to or watching again a recording of a lecture afterwards as important to them. The desire for recorded lectures came up particularly when we were talking in the focus group with students who we had um, identified as having uh, accessibility needs. They were invited to come to a focus group and that was a very lively focus group and things like recording lectures um, was very, very important to them. So given that Oxford does actually have an enormous amount of recorded lectures and podcasts, um, so we, ask, we always ask our students questions about um, listening, to, listening to podcasts. And there's you know, generally a, a feeling that Oxford needs to keep pace with technologies and that people won't stop coming to Oxford by us offering lectures online. And it increases the um, profile of the university. So podcasts were listened to by 70% of the respondents with taught postgraduates accessing the most, 77%, and undergraduates sitting at about 65%, which is you know, a big chunk of what, what they're doing at the university. They're looking at the um, iTunes U and the podcast collections. They're looking for lecturers that they've heard of or topics that they've heard of and listening to, to the lectures from previous years. We also, of course, asked the Freshers' Fair students about, about podcasts. And so this, this year, so we've just done the 2012 Freshers' Fair. 72% uh, had heard of Oxford on iTunes U. 30% said they'd listened to podcasts before coming to university. 67% said they'd listened to lectures and talks on relevant subjects. 55% said they'd listened to introductions to the university. Um, and others said, said um, there's a, a variety of other things that are in that, in that collection. Um, and I am always asked, um, Melissa, can you, do you know how many people at Oxford are listening to the podcast? Because we know that we've had 18 million downloads from more than 100 countries outside um, the university. So um, it's sometimes a little bit hard to get data that is specific to Oxford University, but we can get data that's specific to the UK so about 20% of the downloads that we get from Oxford on iTunes U are from the UK. Um, from podcast.ox, so we have a parallel site, we have um, the UK visitors are, are the majority there. So we've got iTunes U is getting mostly international visitors, podcast.ox is getting mostly UK visitors. So the students have clearly heard of iTunes U and podcast.ox, but they're finding the podcasts one way or another, because they're certainly listening to them. 
And with regard to the online materials, um, it's worth looking at the numbers who are using, using WebLearn. So they're going into WebLearn and looking for course handbooks. They're looking for uh, online materials. They're using WebLearn to sign up for classes, um, to sign up for tutorials and the sign up tool. The feedback about WebLearn from the students that we um, talked to in the Digi report was, was mixed. It generally focused on material being hard to find. It is hard to find my materials. Now, whether that's because there aren't materials there and they're searching, or whether the materials that they're finding in the places they're going in their departmental areas, it isn't um, consistent in the way that it's organized. Um, obviously, this is down to departments and where departments have made a particular effort to organize materials. So we know particular departments that have taken sort of program-wide or um, cohort-wide um, attempts. Then the feedback from the students is much, much better. So for the students that we knew were from those kind of areas, they were saying, WebLearn, I can find everything on WebLearn, it's great. And other people saying, I can't find, it's difficult to find. And so we could kind of tell um, where they were from. And I thought this was probably worth showing you. This is the, the logins to WebLearn uh, right now, this week. So you can see, so we're sort of starting at this side is the um, end of August. We're going up into the first three weeks of term, first two weeks of term there. Um, that's 16,000 logins on the 3rd of September in preparation for the start of term, 17,000 on Monday, the 8th of October, which is the start of week one. And we're staying consistently um, at 13, 14, 15,000 daily logins. So, there's, so our students are definitely going in to WebLearn um, perhaps several times a day. That's not unique people, that's unique logins. So they're, they're possibly visiting several times. Um, within WebLearn, we have, I mean, WebLearn use all across the, the divisions. Um, we actually have, if we're trying to measure the use of the WebLearn across different divisions, the things we can count is the number of sites. And actually, the biggest user by division of WebLearn is social sciences. They have about 930 sites. And MSD, um, Medical Sciences Division, has 680 sites. So there's, there's definitely a lot of people putting material into WebLearn, and there's a lot of people looking at it. So that experience of sometimes not being able to find things must be to do with the user experience and the navigation um, around that. We also know that, that students are using digital materials in particularly digital ways to study, to study differently. So here's a very nice quote from a student. Um, While writing my dissertation for my master's this past June, I needed to know how many times Iago was called the devil in Shakespeare's Othello. I realized that there was a time in my life when this would actually have involved counting. But luckily, no counting was required. I pulled up an online edition and Apple effed to my heart's content. Anybody know the answer? Well, in, in, in case you need it, the answer is he's called a villain five times, um, but only after being called honest eight times. So you have that for dinner table conversation tonight. And, and some very nice quotes from students about how they use what happens to them when they start to use the web. Um, so this is their, their digital experience. You know how on Wikipedia you start reading an article on the Babington plot and you end up clicking on links until you're reading about Carmilla? Once you start clicking, you can't stop. What? This professor who's speaking on Aristotle has also covered George Eliot? Got to see that. 
what this related link has a photo of the actual card the Marcus of Queensbury used, uh, wrote accusing Oscar Wilde of posing as a sodomite. I have to see that. An economics professor lecturing on modern theatre, curiouser and curiouser. So students um, describing their digital experience as this, she, she describes it as a sort of um, Alice down the rabbit hole type experience as she keeps exploring and more and more wonderful things, but it does take a lot of time. It's also, um, I think when we're thinking about what technologies our students use, we're thinking about what technologies they come to learn to use as well as the ones that they find themselves using. So it's worth looking at the numbers of students who come to training, to IT training, um, to learn digital literacy skills. And in this building, we train in IT skills and also in the library information literacy program. So the students um, seek out and come and sign up for um, courses that they choose, they want to learn for themselves. And we group, so we have about 200 topics that we teach in and we group, for, for ease of explanation, we group them into different um, sort of themes rather than the name of the technology. But you can see that students are coming to learn about communication and collaboration is this, this one at the start, data analysis huge numbers, so you're looking at you know, two and a half thousand people coming to, to learn that and the um, increase between 2011 and 2012 uh, research studies, so people increasingly um, thinking I need to use technology in my research and they're choosing IT training courses that have research in the title or research skills. Um, it's about four and a half thousand people come, that's four and a half thousand individuals because we see like sort of 13, 14,000 bums on seats uh, because about on, on average people will attend three or more courses. Some people attend 10, 20 courses. We get to know them. They know the biscuits. They get a cup of tea when we see them. So there's lots of people, lots of students um, coming for, for training uh, repeatedly. And the OUCS and the Wiser Bodleian courses get consistently good responses in the, in the Digi report, people talking about the very high quality of IT training um, that they get at Oxford University. I thought it was worth saying something about the, the technologies that students bring with them and the gadgets that they bring. Um, particularly at Oxford this year, there's been an initiative in the new Blavatnik School where they have decided to give all of their students an iPad um, and that's been a very interesting project because they had to think about how material was going to be de delivered to that iPad, what the user experience was going to be. It's very interesting stuff about the control of these very personal devices, whether, you, whether it's an institutionally given device or whether it's your personal learning environment, what you can add and what you can't. So there's some very interesting stuff going on um, over at Blavatnik School thinking about that. Um, the majority of the students in the focus groups that we had said that mobile phones, was their mobile phone was the essential digital tool in their lives. They reported that they used smartphones in a variety of ways and that smartphones were central to their lives. I would forget everything without it. Uses for the phones, including reading emails, but less writing or sending emails. So just keeping track of the emails that are coming in, checking Facebook, 
synchronizing calendars and communicating via messaging, so SMS or WhatsApp, that kind of thing. Many students reported that the first thing they did on opening their eyes each morning was to check their emails on their smartphones. One student told us she used her smartphone as a wireless hotspot to connect her tablet PC to the internet when her college's wireless service was not working. So these phones are being used in a variety of ways. Another student described how he would use the phone to photograph the whiteboard during lectures, during tutorials, instead of taking notes and share those photographs on Facebook with peers after the tutorial. So on average, a third of the survey respondents used, it, used at least one calendar to organize their social lives. Data from the focus groups and digital diaries suggested that students try to synchronize those calendars with the personal, with their Google calendars and their personal calendars on their smartphones and find this to be quite, quite difficult. So one of the recommendations to the university was about trying to make calendars, calendaring more um, consistent. Uh, they do occasionally use their phones to actually make phone calls, although that's not the main use. Um, and even when they are making calls, actually Skype um, and Google Talk uh, were the technologies that they referred to rather than the sort of straight um, mobile provided uh, phone calls. So I use Skype almost every day to communicate with family and friends. We also asked about assistive devices, particularly in, in one of the focus groups. But amongst the survey respondents, just under 4% of undergraduates and 2% of, of top postgraduates and 2% of research postgraduates stated that they used assistive software or hardware um, in their studies. And they gave us a list of the various um, tools that they use, which include all of the ones you would expect to do with mind mapping, um, reading and writing uh, tools. Uh, dragon naturally speaking, that kind of uh, uh, speech-to-text type tool, um, and extra hardware, large display screens, trackerball mouses, mices, uh, trackerball mice, uh, special keyboards and speci special chairs. So we, um, we certainly have a, a, a group of students, some of whom identified themselves as being having accessibility needs. Others just mentioned that they use those um, technologies just because they've heard of them and, and certainly the voice to text stuff is something you would be doing on your Siri mobile phone or on your iPad. Anyway, it's, um, it's not a niche activity um, anymore. One thing that actually, the surprisingly, the students uh, didn't actually discuss, but we have from other sources, um, is the use of, of the internet for cheating, and um, I recently attended the Turnitin Users Group, which is an event I, I recommend to anybody who's interested in such things, because the tutors who come to Turnitin User Group have the most fascinating stories to tell of the efforts they have made to track down the various um, processes that students have gone through using technology to hide the fact that their work is not original. So this is not people who have missed the training on, on plagiarism offered by their department. They've been on that training. This is deliberate attempts to use technology um, in clever ways to just, um, in ways that they think the tutor won't, won't spot and that they'll be able to, to get around this. And the proctors um, at last year's demitting address 
made mention of this, proctors have also had to deal with more serious cases where students have attempted to use the many websites and organizations that offer to write assignments on particular topics. And in one instance, a student submitted questions that were set for a take-home assignment, they put the question out on the internet, and got responses they put it into a help forum, and then um, basically benefited from, from that. But uh, the Turnitin user group um, has heard many similar stories. Um, and it, at the, there is actually a, a case going on at Harvard at the moment where a large group of students have been caught plagiarizing. And a lot of the feeling around that um, case is that students who are under a lot of pressure at elite institutions will go to quite, they will decide that the need to succeed outweighs the risk of getting caught in, in various ways. So they'll put quite a lot of effort into using technology to try to um, get round actually having to um, put so much effort into the work. But sometimes it seems like they're putting as much effort into the cheating as they would be into doing, doing the work. But thinking also about Oxford, things that might make Oxford a distinct uh, context. People always say it's different. It's different here. Certainly, the, the physical shape of the place make it very difficult, and the complexity of the organization. So the wireless coverage, lack of wireless coverage, came up again and again and again. Um, and some of that is to do with the nine-foot-thick walls and the many, many buildings that we have, and the fact that the spaces are owned by different people. So you could put it in all of the university-owned buildings, but still it would be up to the colleges to make sure that that signal is getting across their gardens and into their NCRs. And you know, it's quite, quite considerable, but it does come up in the student barometer as well as our um, survey. It also is very clear that our institution is very complex, and it starts to make sense, perhaps, once you're part of the institution. Anybody think so? But it's certainly confusing to people who are outside, who haven't yet um, become part of our organization. So I remember when trying to register before coming to Oxford, I was very confused as to what these different sites were and what I would be using them for. Disparate nature of the university means colleges and departments are not even remotely consistent in the range and structure of information they present, which makes it very difficult to contrast different options when applying. So if you think about the range of college sites and the range of departmental sites for making choices. The admissions section of the website is labyrinthine. I presumed it was a deliberate choice along the lines of if you have to ask how to find something, then you aren't smart enough to come. Once I'd found information, I made sure I printed it out, as I would never guarantee I could find that same page again. So the digital experience is that if you find it, you immediately print it out. We also asked students um, as their perceptions of the use of digital technologies by teaching staff at Oxford. Um, so on average, on average, students do not rate the competence and use of digital technologies displayed by teaching staff very highly. Students seem more likely to rate staff as less IT competent than themselves than more IT competent than themselves. But also, Oxford undergraduates do not necessarily expect or even want high levels of digital technology use by academic staff. There's a three, three quite different and interesting points there. There is a marked variability 
in the IT competence of teaching staff and their use of digital um, digital materials in in teaching. So they so the same student will say, I have this one lecturer who does this and this and this, but that's the only example I can think of. Or some of them say, all of my lecturers use this and everything is on on WebLearn or something. So there's um, there's disparity across the across the piece, and that comes up a lot. That one tutor may be doing all of this stuff, and another one will be doing nothing. The question, I'm sure Liz would, would want me to say, Liz, Liz <laughs> chief researcher sitting in the back room, the question did not explore perceptions as to what constitutes competence. Okay, so this is just their perception. Do you think that tutors are better at using technology than you are, or do you think you're better at using technology than that? More postgraduate respondents found academic staff less competent than themselves, and more undergraduates found the staff more competent. So they said things like, in my department, technological knowledge does not seem to be a priority. It varies greatly. Some tutors seem incapable of getting a DVD to play. Others are very good with PowerPoint, etc. They do not seem to have the time to familiarize themselves with technologies which could make their lives simpler to manage. I have been surprised by how poor the IT skills of some academic staff are. I'm a mature student myself in my 50s. I expected academics to be making maximum use of potential that digital technologies offer for accessing the wealth of databases and research material that's available. Most of the ones I know, though, though extremely clever and intellectually effective, make only the most super superficial use of digital technology, seeming to conceptualize it in no more sophisticated way than, for instance, a typewriter or a telephone. But what we found was that opinions were very divided as to whether or not IT competence on the part of academics was particularly the most important thing about their experience. So some students really didn't see cutting-edge use of digital technologies as very important for their experience at Oxford. Um, and they had come here seeking a very different experience than that. So when asked to rate whether academic staff used digital technologies more or less than they expected, so most, a, a majority, just well, about half, said that the usage was as they had expected. Um, but 20% said less than expected, and so 17% more than expected. So, but most, mostly it seemed to fit with as they expected. So the perceptions of Oxford, or what studying at Oxford would be like, seemed to be being met. Undergraduates were the least impressed with their teachers' use of technology, um, gave them a rating of, of, of one more than postgraduate, we asked them to rate on a, on a scale of one to five. So I have one tutor who doesn't have a computer and relies on handwritten notes and phone calls. It doesn't make much difference, though. Let's face it, it's Oxford. We're not famous for our netbooks, we're famous for our books. We've got the biggest paper library on earth, but our digital library is somewhat lacking. But that's okay. I actually have been relieved and pleased that staff do not rely more on digital technologies but feel that their verbal input is of preeminent importance. That's why we're here and not taking online courses with cyber tutors. They don't use PowerPoint much, and it's great. I love that the lecturers aren't dependent on PowerPoint. So, so, so generally, there's 
the students are rating the staff perhaps as not particularly IT literate, but it's not clear the extent to which that is really a problem for them. So some of them feel that it is, um, and that Oxford staff should be making use of, of all of the most up-to-date technologies. But I think that the experience, particularly the undergraduate experience of the small group tutorials and the one-to-one -one discussions, um, and the sort of guided, guided reading process, personal, personal, ex personal learning experience, um, sometimes makes it hard to see where the technology would be being used in that, in that transaction. And we also ask staff whether students are demanding greater use of technology in tutorials and classes. And the reply from staff was that they're not. Um, one tutor commented that students do not ask for things to change in general as much as she imagined they would. And they seem to come, become acculturated to Oxford very quickly and either do not come with many expectations or do not keep those expectations for long. So she said they tuck in very quickly with what we do. I think discussions about staff skills, given that we weren't actually surveying staff and, and their skills, we didn't do some you know, training needs analysis or an audit on IT skills. Um, it's very interesting because the, you know, this is a, a, a very good university in which many, many staff are making use of the absolute most up-to-date technologies in their research and they're part of um, research groups all over the world and so they're online in discussion groups and forums and sharing data and manipulating data in amazing ways and doing wonderful things with medical imaging and you know, inventing some of those new technologies. So I, I don't think that as a university we have um, poor use of technology amongst staff. I think what's quite interesting is the extent to which those technologies are being used in the, in the teaching, teaching process. Um, and also perhaps with it's worth looking at some, some of the use of the different technologies. So when I was talking about podcasts earlier, the students find those very valuable. Well, who's making those podcasts? We've got hundreds of people recording their lectures and putting them up. So we've got hundreds of podcasters. So the academics are perfectly able and interested in, in using particular technologies where it fits with their activities. The students logging into WebLearn are finding materials that are put there by staff. So it's not that nobody, um, it's not that the staff are unaware um, of the technology. In this program, in the Engage program, we've heard from, from several academics who are using blogging and Twitter and social media and all of the most up-to-date tools to disseminate research and engage with their students. So there's definitely examples, there's people who are using, finding the technologies that they want to use in the work that they're doing. And I think that um, students' perceptions of staff competence does need to be balanced um, against what the staff are actually doing when they're, when they're teaching. And it may be that they are choosing to teach in a particular way. So a lot of the comments from staff were talking about students need to learn that not everything is online. They need to spend longer with sources, finding sources that are not instantly available. So they're actively choosing not to use the technology for this part of of the learning. So they need to learn that everything's not online. Um, they may be deliberately teaching without technology, but there's a mismatch perhaps of perception and perhaps it's to do with students who are talking with peers about their experience at other universities where a lot of material is put online and the virtual learning environment sort of drives the, drives the courses through. So we have some lovely, lovely quotes from, from staff about how they use technology and how um, and they're using the most up-to-date technologies in the, in the 
processes that they're doing. So this is um, from an English lecture. It's quite a long quote, but it describes, I've been using an iPad to start work on research for a new book. A very superficial part of me thought that the mere fact of writing on something sexy would make my book more so. I'm not convinced of that now, but I'm finding the whole PDF library really transformative in terms of my note-taking and thinking. When I wrote my thesis, I transcribed all of the resources I was quoting onto paper, made a lot of mistakes, and often forgot to write down the page number. With the next book I worked on, I used a laptop to write my notes, but the combination of overzealous autocorrect and my ham-fisted touch typing make those quotations unreliable too. This time around, it's all different because I'm finding PDFs of all the texts I want to quote from online, downloading them into iBooks, and I have my own little specialist library. In my pre-iPad life, I would habitually transcribe too little and then realize that once the book had gone back to the stack that I'd missed something out that I subsequently realized was most useful. So, so you know, our, our colleagues are using iPads and um, PDFs and electronic uh, resources in their own work, and it, if they're perhaps not using them in the one-to-one -one tutorials there, I suspect there's a reason. We asked staff how they thought technology might change the student experience in the next five years. Most of the staff interviewees felt the fundamentals of teaching and learning at Oxford will change little. No matter what the technologies are, people who are reading left to right are probably going to continue to read left to right. Grad students are still going to struggle with how much time their literature reviews take and how much time it takes them to write their theses. Close face-to-face -face interaction remains the best way to help science students to apply new concepts, overcome the issues that they encounter, and to probe humanity's students' ability to construct coherent argument from multiple sources. It's considered more important to protect one-to-one -one teaching than to develop online ways of studying. Few of the staff that we um, interviewed could um, envisage online courses achieving the kind of um, particular kind of dialogue and responsiveness that they would want. A particular one of the particular tutors warned that, as a, as we're saying earlier, that inertia is actually a system that still works. He said that. He warned that Oxford will have to be careful to safeguard the value of place as a counterbalance to the dehumanizing processes of networking remotely and virtually. And it's the judicious use of technology to support models of learning that we think are important that should be perpetuated. So that's about enriching the current learning rather than doing new types of learning. But other colleagues equally saying that the special quality of the Oxford experience is no longer an excuse for outdated methods or technology. So we need to be removing, uh, we need to be reviewing our work to make sure that what we're doing um, is the most up to date. There was some suggestions that a huge explosion in online courses, that the certainly with the kind of landscape that's out there with um, the various different MOOCs and big providers of online courses. Um, might still happen and that Oxford might be part of it, but that that wouldn't um, it decrease the demand for face-to-face -face courses. Um, so whatever we choose to do online doesn't, won't actually affect um, the value of the face-to-face. -face. So I don't know whether um, that makes you feel better or worse about the digital student experience at Oxford. Um, the purpose of the as a result of the research, there are going to be follow-up projects. And if you have suggestions on what kinds of things the university should be further researching, do let us know. Um, in terms of the, the 
the sort of management information that that was providing to the university. It will, the main actions will be around trying to get consistency and parity across the systems that we do um, provide. And those are the, as I said, those are the um, sort of uh, recommendations that were coming to the university. But I think there's a lot in there and it's worth having a read because there's some really great quotes and some really great, great numbers if you need to make a case um, for what technology students are, are using.